Welcome back to the Monday Morning Point Guard Podcast. On this episode, uh, going to be bringing back the fast break segment that I did about a month or so ago. Um, a lot happened in the league last week, and it was some things that I, I didn't feel like deserved or, or warranted a full 15, 20-minute video or so. Um, so I'm just going to be touching on a couple topics here briefly and uh, moving right along. Um, if you do like the video, please give us a like and subscribe. We're doing, we're dropping content weekly. So uh, stick around for that. Also, if there's some areas that you agree with, disagree with, or just a topic you'd like us to discuss in the future, throw it in the comment section and we'd love to discuss it with you. I guess kicking things off uh, on kind of a somber note, uh, last night as of the time of recording this, uh, Kevin Durant sprained his MCL. He's going to be out the next four to six weeks. Uh, really scary moment for obviously Brooklyn Nets fans and then the NBA NBA as a whole, um, you know, at least me as an NBA fan, when we come playoff time, you know, I want to see the best teams at full strength really going at it. And if that had been like a torn ACL, we probably wouldn't have seen him. We almost assuredly wouldn't have seen him the rest of this season, um, but doesn't need surgery. So that's great news. It's just going to be some rehab, um, but we really shouldn't be su too surprised that he ended up getting injured. Uh, currently fifth in the league as of recording this in minutes per game. Um, and it's not like these are easy minutes. It's not like he's just, you know, wandering down the court and going to stand in the corner and, and getting, you know, cupcake defensive matchups uh, because of the lack of interior um, consistent interior play and, and kind of depth at that center spot. He's kind of had to be the de facto defensive anchor for them. Also, because of no Kyrie for most of the season, I know they just got him back, but, you know, at least at the beginning of the year, they didn't have him. And then also this really limited version of James Harden, an inconsistent version of James Harden we've had. He's really had to carry the load offensively. It's just not sustainable for a guy that's in the back half of his career and two years ago missed an entire season due to an Achilles tear. So it's just not, a, it shouldn't come as a huge surprise that a guy at this stage, like Kevin Durant um, would eventually get injured under the circumstances where he's really carrying the team on both ends and then, you know, playing just some obscene amounts of minutes. Um, if we're looking at this through an optimistic lens, though, for Nets fans, uh, if you had to deal with the Kevin Durant injury at some point in the year, this is about the best time that that could have happened. We're still, uh, you know, still got about a month to go before the trade deadline. So they can really evaluate the roster and see what they need to bring in. And, you know, for their play, you know, they're getting Kyrie back, at least for away games. I've heard some grumblings that he, he may come back for home games too at some point. I didn't really want to dive into the whole legality of that. And, and, and I'm just kind of sick of the COVID stuff just in general. I feel like most people probably are. So I didn't really look into that too much, but great. If he can, if not, you at least have him for away games. Also Harden, um, he's going to have to take the reins here, you know, especially if Kyrie's only playing away games, he's going to really have to, you know, take the reins of this team and he's just not looked the same all year. And you know, literally in, in a certain case when it comes to his body shape. Um, now with him having to carry the load, he's going to have to play himself back into shape and maybe he'll kind of get back to form, you know, what we saw in Houston um, all those years. I've talked about it a couple of times on this podcast. I think there are some real concerns with him that he's just never going to be back to that level of player. Just, you know, he doesn't take care of his body. And if he doesn't get back into shape, it's going to be a struggle for him. 
But also the more concerning piece of that is he put a ton of miles on in Houston, having to carry that team offensively year in and year out, those high usage rates. I mean, we would see every year they'd get to the playoffs, he'd just be out of steam because during the regular season, he was just carrying them night in and night out. So if those miles had finally caught up to him, like I knew they would at some point, um, that's not good news. But just in general, this team needs to learn how to play without relying on Kevin Durant so heavily. He can't be, you know, the guy who carries them on both end, night in and night out during the regular season. He really needs to save that for the playoffs. So this is going to give them, you know, a month, two months where they're going to have to learn to live without him. Um, and for their position in the standings, it's, it's pretty low risk for them. Um, real looking at the standings, the only teams that are really, you know, a threat to pass them uh, or like as far as they could fall, I could really only see them going to the sixth seed. So they're still avoiding the play in. If the wheels completely fall off of this thing, I don't expect they will. I think Harden and Kyrie, um, could kind of keep them afloat enough. And, but if, if it's a complete disaster without him, I don't think they're in any threat of falling into a play-in situation. And honestly, kind of on a, a joking note, but also serious, if, if Kyrie's only able to play away games, you know, come playoff time, I think they would probably rather have him than um, a home game. So if they drop in the standings, they're going to have more away games, and that means more Kyrie. So that's that could be a blessing in disguise if they end up dropping in the, in the, in the uh, standings. So I, I think – they're going to be fine. I think they're going to be fine for this next month. It, it might look a little ugly at times, but I don't think it's going to jeopardize, you know, the long-term goals of this team. And I think kind of getting away from the really heavy Kevin Durant reliance is honestly in their best interest. Um, moving on, we had uh, Bull Bull. Um, for those who don't know, he's a bench warmer on Denver, uh, but a really interesting bench warmer, probably the most interesting bench warmer in the league. He's a seven foot three guy or so, something like that, but he plays like a guard. I mean, he handles the ball like a guard and he, the shot's a little bit ugly, but it goes in a whole hell of a lot. So, I mean, he's really just a guard trapped in a seven foot three guy's body. Um, not the worst thing to have. Um, so he got traded to Detroit, but the trade ended up falling through. He didn't pass his physical, a little bit alarming for, uh, on his side of things. Um, I, from what I remember, I didn't end up looking this up, but I remember him being a pretty highly regarded high school prospect heading into college. Um, and then he had kind of an injury riddled season with Oregon ends up being a second round pick, which I think if you had looked at him in high school, that was far lower than we would have ever imagined him going, um, for uh, the NBA draft uh, really has struggled to find time on the court. Denver has been like a really competitive team during uh, bowl bowls tenure there. So it's tough to find playing time for a developmental project, especially when you have Nikola Jokic, you know, my, uh, my money, the best center in the league currently. Um, I, you just don't want to take any minutes away from him and the fit between the two might be a little weird. Um, anybody yeah it's just I don't know it's it's tough for him to find playing time I you know for the bowl bowl piece of this I have no idea what to make of this guy I feel like every time I see him play on the rare occasion I get to see him play I'm really impressed at like what he could be and it seems like he's playing pretty well it's it's hard to 
you know, imagine why he wouldn't be getting playing time somewhere. Um, but I think it's probably, you know, I talked about this a little bit with Sabonis and Miles Turner. This is obviously a more severe degree of that. Um, you know, I think there's not a lot of trade buzz around Sabonis because he's a harder piece to make work. Like you have to find a really specific role for him. He doesn't fall into like the cookie cutter defined roles that we already have. Bol Bol is this to a T, you know, he's not, he's not a traditional center. So it's kind of hard to figure out what to do with him. I, if I were coaching a team and this is probably why I'm here and not coaching a team, I would have no idea what to do with this guy um, from a, from a role standpoint or from a developmental perspective Um, for, for Denver um, this, I mean, they would have only gotten a second round pick, I believe back in this trade. So not a huge haul, um, but Honestly, with the way that they draft, they seem to always nail their draft picks. So it would have been nice to get a future pick down the road, especially for, you know, a player that I would say they probably have no plans to bring back. He's on the last year of his contract and then no plans to really play him this season. So to get anything back for something like that would have been nice for them. For the Detroit piece, I mean, they're going nowhere this year. Um, so it would have been nice to get like an enticing prospect. And for them, Second round pick, a really low cost um, to get a guy who, at least in high school, is very highly regarded. It's like a it's sort of like the Michael Porter Jr. Denver situation. You know, he was, you know, consensus number one player in America heading into his first year at Mizzou. But then he had such serious injury concerns that he really plummeted in the draft and allowed that allowed Denver to take him. You know, not a high investment on their end at the time but with huge upside potential. Um, obviously not looking super great on that right now, having just extended him and he's out for indefinitely with some more back issues. Um, for Detroit, it would have been a very similar situation. You know, Second round pick is a low cost to pay for a guy who could be really good. Obviously the injury concerns, um, you know, really, really big issue there. And that's why Denver's would be keen on giving him up. Um, I think he could have gotten minutes in Detroit. Uh, you know, Isaiah Stewart's a, a fine starter. And with the, all the COVID stuff going on, you know, you don't always have all your guys, be it Stewart or Kelly Olenek. So he could have found time. Uh, the two or so games I've watched Luke, Luke Garza play, Luca Garza, I think it's Luca Garza, um, Garza play. It's clear he's not he's not an NBA caliber player. Um, he's he's a very skilled center, but just athletically, he can't compete on an NBA court. Uh, Garza, you know, when he was out there, it reminded me of the scene in Eight Crazy Nights where the little referee character is like um, Adam Sandler and him are refing a basketball game, and he's trying to keep up with the kids as they're going up and down the court, and he's just always like ten seconds behind everyone. Um, Garza doesn't run really funny like that character did. I didn't mean that to come across as mean as it probably sounded. Um, but you know, when the fast break is happening and Garza's trying to keep up with everyone, it's it's honestly hilarious. So to bring in like a guy to kind of play those minutes when you maybe either have some COVID issues or just want to give guys a rest, try something new, um, that that would have been really nice for them. But alas, it didn't happen. So uh we won't have the you know the bowl bowl awakening this season probably uh, maybe they can find a different team who's willing to take him on despite the, the issues with the physical I don't know um, but moving on to a trade that did actually happen uh, we had the Knicks and the Hawks uh, reach an agreement that would send Cam Reddish and Solomon Hill in a second round pick 
uh, from the Hawks to the Knicks for Kevin Knox and a very heavily protected first round pick. Uh, that pick is top 18 protected for 2022, top 16 protected for 23, and top 14 protected for 24, 25. After that, it becomes two second round picks. Um, for the Atlanta side of this, I'm going to go over this first because it's it's kind of the least interesting, I guess. Um, is this really the best deal that they could have gotten for Cam Reddish? That seems ludicrous to me. Um, really concerning if it is for teams like uh, Detroit, maybe want to get off of Jeremy Grant. Um, if this is the type of haul you can expect for, you know, Cam Reddish, you know, not an all-star caliber player by any means, but I feel like a lot of people think pretty highly of him and what he could be. Um, I would have expected a lot more for this. Um, you know, a, a late first round pick or two second round picks. Um, obviously, you know, they get Kevin Knox. Maybe Atlanta feels some type of way about him. I can't imagine that being the case. Um, I can't imagine he's even going to get any playing time there. Playing time is really hard to come by in Atlanta. Um, you know, I can't imagine Knox getting out there ahead of Bogdanovich, Herter, or Hunter. Or if you run a runner, run him at the four, some combination of, of Gallinari or, or, or John Collins. Um, I just can't see him getting playing time. And that's kind of the reason that, you know, they ended up dealing Cam Reddish, at least in part, is because he had requested a trade because he wasn't happy with his role there. Um, we'll kind of get into it, the Atlanta piece of it next week when we do some midseason stuff. Um, because he Reddish is not the only guy who's unhappy with his role there. Um so the only thing I can think of for this trade is maybe they needed to open up a roster spot. You know, they, they get rid of two players and deal them, deal them for one. Um, so, but you know, if that was the case, I feel like you could have cut Solomon Hill, you know, waived him or bought him out or whatever. And not, it wouldn't have cost you too much financially. He's on a pretty low cost deal and it's the last year of that deal. So I don't know. Um, the only other thing I can think of is maybe there's a deal coming down the line that Atlanta wants to capitalize on where the team um, that they're dealing with did not want Cam Reddish and would have preferred a first round pick. Uh, that's the only other thing. I, I, I know they've been rumored for Ben Simmons, but I honestly can't see a John Collins um, as a centerpiece of a Ben Simmons deal. I just can't see Daryl Morey going for that. Uh, the fit with Embiid is okay, but I wouldn't consider it great. Um, and there are just better packages out there for Simmons, I feel like, or at least I would hope for Philly's sake. Uh, if this does end up being the only move they make of the deadline, or like this isn't related to another move that they're making in the future before the deadline, uh, it's kind of a yikes deal for me. I, I mean, they really gave up Reddish for, for very little. And it's not like Reddish was on the last year of his deal, you know, unhappy or not. He's still under contract for next season, so they could have done something next year and gotten at least the same package, I would have to imagine. Um, so I, I wouldn't feel too great if I'm an Atlanta fan if this doesn't end up amounting to anything you know, else down the line. Uh, for the Knicks, this is honestly, it just seems like a heist. I mean, they gave up very little. And for Reddish, he's shown that he's a good defender with potential to be a great defender. Uh, for the scoring piece, you know, he can, he's shown flashes that he can go out and get a bucket on his own as like a smooth, you know, smooth operator type scorer. Um, and they really did, like I said, they really didn't give much up to make this happen. Um you know, for them, if they do have plans to keep him for the future, you know, they can extend him this summer on what I ha would have to imagine is a pretty affordable deal for them. 
or if they're not happy with the way it goes the rest of the season, uh, they still have a year left on him so they can kind of, you know, make him prove it if they feel like they want to do that. Um, the Knicks are kind of sorely in need of guys who can get buckets on their own and, and Reddish has shown, shown some flashes that he could do that. Also a, another young player, you know, for a team that has kind of not gotten off to, you know, the start they would have hoped and is not having the season that they would have hoped getting a young guy who can, they can develop in here is, is never going to be a bad thing. Also reddish fit wise with Thibodeau. I mean, this is the type of guy that Thibodeau just drools over. So, you know, could be really exciting there. I think he'll get some real playing time and, and really get a chance to show what he can do. Um, kind of on a funnier note, it does look like the, the Knicks are really gearing up to try and make a play for Zion at some point, um, kind of reuniting the, his Duke teammates. Um, that could be something Zion's interested in kind of revisiting down the line. I think that's probably not going to happen. I think it was probably more coincidence than anything, maybe kind of a, a nice bonus that they could, you know, have a better pitch for Zion down the line. But I think they probably just wanted to grab a player like Reddish on a, on a pretty low cost trade. Um, you know, obviously I've, I've said a lot of good things about Reddish, but obviously he's not going to really move the needle for what they can do this year. Um, you know, I, and there are some real concerns for him. You know, he's been really efficient, inefficient, I'm sorry, inefficient in Atlanta, you know, when he's been given opportunities to kind of cook on his own. Um, and, you know, at Duke, Reddish really struggled compared to what we thought he would be coming out of high school alongside R.J. Barrett, who's reunited with here. So I'd be a little bit concerned on that front. But, you know, again, for what they gave up, this is a really low risk thing for them. So I think they should feel really good about this deal. You know, maybe some Knicks fans, I certainly haven't seen any on Twitter who would be concerned about giving up Kevin Knox, but he wasn't getting any run anyway. So they, they clearly weren't interested in giving him playing time and he was on the last year of his deal. So I can't imagine there were any plans to resign him. So th they gave up a late first round pick and a guy who wasn't going to be on the team next year anyway, who they were going to let walk. Um, they got a, a real NBA player, a young guy who they can develop. So I think Knicks fans should be really happy about this, but I think we should hold off on planning the parade. Uh, moving on to the Lakers, this is kind of uh, just, I don't know. They just, LeBron is just carrying them. And it, a lot of games, it just hasn't amounted to much. I think they're on a three-game losing streak. Um, point guard on offense and center on defense. I don't know how he's going to hold up for the playoffs. And from a 37-year-old in his 19, 19th season, this isn't a long-term plan of success. You know, having a, a player in his in the twilight stages of his career, I have to imagine, unless he pulls a Tom Brady and plays for another 10 years. Um, yeah, this just isn't a long-term plan for success. I can't imagine him holding up for the playoffs, you know, playing point guard on offense and center on defense. Um the Lakers, you know, I heard some rumblings that way earlier in the year, they had kind of kicked the tires on, on trading Russell Westbrook. Really no shock there that that didn't end up happening. I can't imagine there was a huge trade market or any interest in acquiring Russell Westbrook for most teams. Um, for the teams that have the cap room to kind of absorb his contract, it, it's really tough to kind of bring him in if you're looking to develop young guys. He's really not a good player. Uh, to do that. And, and the Rockets obviously have a, a deal out there that they, you know, we could see the John Wall, Russell Westbrook swap again, but 
I can't imagine the Rockets really are interested in that because, you know, they're paying Wall to sit at home, who's on a very similar contract, um, so that he doesn't stunt the development of their young guys. Russell Westbrook is way worse for young guys than um, John Wall would be just because of his ball dominance. And he would kind of feel especially the need to be the man in Houston. Um, you, you know, maybe the Knicks in the past would have been interested in this. This has Knicks move written all over at acquiring an aging star player who's clearly the best years are behind him. Um, but it seems like they've really wisened up. Obviously, Ben Simmons is out there, but I, I, Embiid, from anything I've seen, doesn't seem to really get along with Russ at all. And also, I can't imagine Daryl Morey doing that again. Um, the Thunder you know, I think Russell Westbrook would help them win some games and they have, you know, kind of the, the room, to, you know, money wise to bring in him and provide relief for the Lakers, but they don't want to win any games. They don't want him to, um, you know, help them win. So won't be seeing a curtain call there. I just don't think there's a deal out there for him. Now it feels like the Lakers are just kind of throwing out names that they're, that they're interested in and with no regards for how they're going to de- get a deal done, you know, Earlier in the year, we saw, oh, you know, if Lakers are interested in acquiring Ben Simmons, well, I, I'm sorry, there's just not a deal for Ben Simmons <laughs> for that. Like, they, they are, as I said, the Sixers are definitely not taking Russell Westbrook back as the big piece of the Ben Simmons trade. Um, oh, now we're interested in acquiring Miles Turner. That'd be a great fit alongside LeBron. Um, just not really a deal there to be made. Um, and, and then this week they're like, oh, well, now we're interested in Gary Trent Jr. from Toronto. Well, there's just not, I mean, unless the, you can swindle them into, you know, taking Taylor Horton Tucker back in that deal, there's just no way to get it done. It doesn't really matter who they're interested in. They just, they don't have any, any trade pieces. I mean, Taylor Horton Tucker, Kendrick Nunn are the only players that are on contracts that are really dealable outside of like Anthony Davis, but I don't think they're going to deal him. So there's just they're really limited on what they can do and because of the the huge price they gave up to get davis like they just don't have a lot of picks anymore to try and convince somebody to take on something you know some pick based package for trade for trades there you know i I just don't know what they're going to do i i'm you know i'm interested in become in buying a mansion i've expressed interest in buying a mansion but I can't afford it. So it's kind of like, what is the point of them throwing out these names? Um, they're honest to God, best bet here is to just pray to the buyout gods that somebody wants to go to LA and it's somebody that can really help move the needle for them. I think they should really consider bringing in DeMarcus Cousins again um, to give them a real option at center. He gave the Bucks some good minutes. And while he's not going to completely you know, transform them into a title contender overnight or a team that we really feel good about as a title contender. I think it's an upgrade on, on the corpse of DeAndre Jordan. Um, also, they could try really try and make a play for Jeremy Grant. I think, you know, if you could somehow convince Detroit that Taylor Horton Tucker is a, is a interesting prospect. I, every time I've seen him play, he just, he's just abominable. Um, but if they could somehow make that work with, with Kendrick Nunn and, and Taylor Horton Tucker, you know, maybe they could get something done for that. I don't know. With the Cam Reddish trade, you know, maybe the trade market for some of these guys isn't as expensive as, as maybe we thought. But if I'm Detroit, like I'm fine with keeping Jeremy Grant rather than taking a flyer on Taylor Horton Tucker, who just signed an extension. So I, I don't know. I think the Lakers are just stuck. I think they're I think their best bet is like maybe making cutting some guys who aren't really panning out and just hitting the free agent market and just 
throwing throwing you know poop at the wall and seeing what sticks welcome back to the monday morning point guard podcast on today's episode going to be talking about curry versus lebron um, in terms of just how different they are as era defining players it's the players that define this era uh, if you do like the video please give us a like also subscribe we're dropping weekly content so we'd love to have you along for that um, also if there's a spot that you agree with disagree with i'm sure there'll be some disagreements uh, just throw a comment in the comment section also if there's a topic you'd like us to discuss in the future uh, throw it down there and we'd love to discuss it. Um, so as I kind of mentioned, as era-defining players, players that define the, the era that we're currently in, um, no two era-defining players uh, are more opposite when compared to each other than Curry and LeBron. These guys always seem to come in pairs. You know, you think Magic and Bird in the 80s, even Wilt and uh, Russell back in the early stages of the NBA. Um, they're always kind of, you know, there's always a lot of opposites between the two um, and none are more opposite than Curry and LeBron. Um, they represent far more than just their own legacies when it comes to uh, basketball, when they're compared, um, they represent dueling philosophies for basketball as a whole. And there's also kind of multiple layers to the things that they represent. Um, I guess let's get the obvious out of the way first body type, you know, LeBron, in the conversation, I would say for one of the most physically gifted human beings to ever exist in our species. Um, he looks like somebody that was beamed straight from Mount Olympus off the pages of some Greek mythology story. He's the type of athlete that could have gone pro in anything he decided to. He just happened to choose basketball. And even entering the league, you know, fresh out of high school, he looked like he belonged. Athletically, even at that stage, he was jumping off the screen. And, you know, if you saw a team photo of those early Cavs, it didn't look like a teenager. He didn't stand out um, in those team photos. He looked like an NBA athlete, you know, as an 18-year-old kid. Uh, Curry, on the other hand, if you didn't have any knowledge of American pop culture or basketball, I don't think you'd recognize him out of a crowd. Um, and when he entered the league out of college, he hadn't really fully developed yet. Um, and at times, you know, he looked like a child out there against the athletes the NBA has to offer. Uh, you know, the way they were raised, you know, LeBron came from really humble beginnings. You know, he was a product of a single motherhood household. Uh, Curry, on the other hand, you know, a two-parent household, grew up in the suburbs, um, and his father was a very well-respected and very successful NBA player. You know, LeBron, early on, he graced the cover of Sports Illustrated as a 17-year-old and was deemed the chosen one. He was the no-brainer first overall pick, and he was labeled as the next guy, uh, the next generational player, um, someone who would eventually, you know, be able to rival MJ for GOAT status. The only question for him kind of entering the draft was, was he going to be able to live up to the hype that the media had created for him? Uh, Curry, on the other hand, you know, despite having a basketball related family name, he wasn't a highly touted recruit heading into college. You know, he was the 16th ranked best pl uh, player in his own state, 60th point guard in the country and 300th overall as a high school senior. He went to a little known college called at the time called Davidson. And despite being a 29 a game scorer in his final season and a two time consensus All American with a magical run through the NCAA tournament in his sophomore year, there were some real question marks um, about whether he could make the jump to the NBA. He ended up in his draft. He was the seventh pick and was the fourth point guard selected, if you can include Tyreek Evans, who played point guard his first year. 
fifth if you want to throw Harden into the mix for point guard. He eventually kind of became one. And Minnesota actually took two point guards directly ahead of him, Johnny Flynn and Ricky Rubio. That has aged like milk. Um, one similarity between the two, at least entering the league, you know, they both went to sputtering organizations, teams that weren't, you know, really considered well-run. Um, but the starts to their careers, again, completely opposite from one another. LeBron really came into the league guns blazing. Um, you know, he won rookie of the year. In his first year, he actually improved the Cavs' win total by 18 wins from their prior year without him. His third year, he took him to the playoffs. This was the first time they had been to the playoffs since the 98 season. Um, so that was, you know, MJ was still playing for the Bulls at that time. Um, also their first winning season since that time. Uh, and, you know, they ended up taking a playoff series in his first, you know, trip to the playoffs. And that actually marked the first time that the Cavaliers had won a playoff season since the 93 season. To put that in context, Michael Jordan hadn't even retired for baseball yet. Um, LeBron, his fourth season, even got to the finals with the team. Um, that was kind of headlined by Booby Gibson. Um, Curry, on the other hand, it was a very bumpy start for him. You know, he was frequently hurt. He was nearly dealt several times. I talked about that uh, on the video when he broke the three-point record. I did a video and talked about how, you know, the Curry thing almost never happened in Golden State. He was almost dealt on draft day and then a couple of times early on throughout his career. Um, but he didn't win rookie of the year. Tyreek Evans had a historic rookie year that year and uh, ended up taking that home. Um and because of the injuries and kind of the rough start he got off to when his, you know, his rookie deal was up and he went to sign that extension, he ended up kind of signing a more team friendly deal. Um, but it was still controversial at the time because of the length of the deal. Um, a lot of people, because of his injury concerns, were concerned about, you know, what that would look like towards the end of the deal, whether he could remain healthy. It was kind of a huge risk. Um, but ultimately, that kind of worked out in their favor. They ended up being able to sign Kevin Durant and kind of assemble that super team in Golden State. Um, LeBron obviously has also benefited from being part of some super teams, um, but you know, even the way that these teams were constructed and kind of thrown together, um, you know, they both played on super teams, but the way they were put together was completely different. You know, the Curry big three, um, including him, Clay, Draymond, those were all homegrown guys. You know, they really benefited from coming into the league around the same time. You know, Durant was added, you know, after they had already become an established team. It was a team that had won 73 games in the regular season and had previously won a title even before that. You know, LeBron, his big threes and, and over the years have been, you know, orchestrated pretty much by him rather than like a front office making moves to kind of trade guys and, and put people in place. Um, especially the one that, you know, in Miami, that was comp him, Wade and Bosch had agreed during the Olympics, that they were going to play together. Um, even, even the second go around in Cleveland, like, you know, they had Kyrie Irving already there. So, uh, you know, you can give the front office credit for that, but once LeBron got there, they elected to sacrifice Anthony Bennett, Andrew Wiggins kind of, I'm sure at his request uh, to get Kevin Love, even Dion Waiters, who was a young guy on that team, he got sacrificed to get J.R. Smith and Amon Shumpert, even looking forward to now with the, the current Lakers group. You know, when he first got there, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram are there. They end up getting shipped out to acquire Anthony Davis. And just in general, their behavior towards the front office and kind of how they operated throughout their career is just completely different. You know, LeBron has acted more like a mercenary, you know, opting to join forces with other players players and looking 
always looking for a greener pasture. You know, when recruited, when recruiting and kind of looking at team building, you know, he's always been more focused on the the type of players he wants to team up with, you know, the, the actual people and kind of uses a, teams as a vessel to do that. You know, he's shown very little loyalty to any team he's played for um, and really just treats them in a what have you done for me lately type fashion. I mean, he's left his hometown team twice, for God's sakes, but honestly, who can blame him? Um, there's a real reason for him to kind of feel as jaded as he does with kind of the approach to teams um, and franchises. You know, LeBron, he's kind of treated the relationship with like the front office as less of a partnership and more like a hostage negotiation. He, he's always used the threat of him leaving as leverage, which has sometimes worked to his benefit, but it's also worked against him. Um, you know, his second stint in Cleveland, he was always using those short-term contracts, signing just short extensions um, to kind of put the pressure on Dan Gilbert to go deep into the luxury tax to assemble the best team possible. You know, the, and for an example where this didn't necessarily work out as well for him, you know, the first go around in Cleveland, 2010, they have a deal lined up for Amari Stoudemire. Um, the deal fell through. I have to imagine, you know, Cavs front office not willing to commit a ton of assets for half a year of Amari and half a year of LeBron if neither ended up signing extensions beyond that you know this has become so much of a meme the LeGM meme you know we've got memes all over the place crowd chants you know crowds chanting LeBron's going to trade you to his teammates even comments from other players like Kyle Kuzma the other day you know he's been playing really well lately and said he felt like LeBron. And so the other guys in the locker room better look out the way they look at him. Otherwise he's going to have them dealt, you know, just in a joking manner, but it's still, it's just become such a meme because his fingerprints are all over moves that the front office make for, for teams um, that he plays for. And, you know, he's always opted to play with veterans who can help him win in the short term versus guys, younger guys who he can help along and maybe take the torch from him down the road. Um, also, you know, the front office, the pressure that he puts on them, you know, they always feel a need to appease him and they end up making moves that they think will excite him, which has led to some, some big name pickups that they're either completely washed or weird fits or both. Um, the state of the current Lakers is like the perfect example of that. You know, you've got Carmelo Anthony, Dwight Howard, DJ or DeAndre Jordan. And, you know, you can just, it's like a who's who of players that haven't been good in 10 years. Um, yeah, his first cab stint even had some really funny names. Like they they bring in Larry Hughes and like he never really does anything for him. Wally Serviak, this was his last stop. Ben Wallace, this was one of his last stops. He ended up having a swan song in Detroit. Um, but yeah, they, they ended up bringing him in. Shaquille O'Neal at age 37. Um, Miami, he didn't get as much of a say in the front office um, affairs as he would have liked. I think that's ultimately what led him to kind of decide to move on that. And the team wasn't looking that great, you know, when he was uh, ended up jumping ship to go back to Cleveland. Um, but there's still some really funny names in there. You know, you've got Mike Bibby, Eddie Curry, Greg Oden, Zadrunas Ogalskis played with him in Miami, Richard, Richard Lewis. Um, yeah, I, I think this had more to do with like, teams were kind of unwilling to trade with Miami at the time because they were put off by the way that the big three was put together um, there. So I think it has less to do with LeBron demanding to play with veterans than like Miami just needed to kind of fill out the roster because they weren't able to deal with anybody. 
Um, his second stand in Cleveland, the second go around, also has some really funny names. You know, you've got Jose Calderon. This is his second to last year in the league, was the year with Cleveland. Sean Marion, his last stop. Kendrick Perkins didn't really play a lot for them, but he was there. He had half a year of Isaiah Thomas, the, the year that the Cavs just had that complete fire sale. Derek Rose, I think the one that will be lost to time is Dwayne Wade for half a season. Um, Andrew Bogut played there, interestingly enough. I remember when he got picked up, you know, ESPN and, and those talk shows made a big deal about what a great pickup that was to get Andrew Bogut. I didn't remember him playing at all, but it turns out per bas- basketball reference, he played one game in one minute. So um, didn't end up being quite as big of a pickup as maybe ESPN thought. Can't forget about Darren Williams. Also, Richard Jefferson uh, ends up being a huge part of that title team as a small ball four. Um, you know, one thing I kind of wanted to mention, like for his team building, you know, he kind of treats franchises like the aliens um, from, you know, either Independence Day or War of the Worlds, maybe both. I can't remember, but um, the point remains the same. You know, the aliens from those movies, you know, they're moving from planet to planet to consume all the natural resources um, and then they'll move on to the next planet. And that's kind of the way LeBron has behaved. You know, he comes in, all the young guys and draft picks get shipped off to bring in vets and other stars. And then once the team is so bogged down with older players on bad contracts and it's completely devoid of draft picks, he'll jump ship. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to see him move on from the Lakers here, um, you know, after next season. Um, and we can't really blame him for this planetary consuming type behavior he has, you know, based on the way that his first stint in Cleveland went, you know, they had, he, they gave him very little reason to um, feel confident in the player development there, or the fact that they would make like a good draft selection, sign a good contract, anything, you know, kind of when he first gets there, Carlos Boozer would have been a really great, like number two option for him and for them. Um, but he ends up playing them like a fiddle on his way out the door to Utah. You know, he really just used them as leverage to get a bigger deal from Utah. And it was a deal that Cleveland couldn't match. So um, not a great start to that relationship. Also look at the guys and kind of the draft decisions they made kind of around LeBron entering the league. So this is just going to be a brief Cleveland draft woes um, during that time. 2000, they draft Jamal Crawford, but they trade him for Chris Mim and cash. Yikes. Um, Dezogna Diop, I'm sure I butchered that pronunciation. I can't remember how it was said. Um, He was the eighth pick. Um, Iso Joe, Joe Johnson was the 10th pick in that draft. Richard Jefferson at 13, Zach Randolph at 19. So again, not great there. Um, Even though Randolph got off to a kind of a slow, rocky start in his career, um, but it still would have been better than um, Diop. Uh, 2002, Dijon Wagner, sixth overall. For those who don't know Dijon Wagner or don't remember, um, really highly touted player coming out of high school. Um, and look up his high school mixtape. Like, he looked amazing. So I'm not going to kill them too much on that pick. But um, Amari Stoudemire, ninth overall in that draft. Karan Butler, 10th. 2004, the year after LeBron is there, they select Luke Jackson, 10th. Could have had Al Jefferson at 15 or Josh Smith at 17. So, not inspiring a lot of confidence. You know, we've got like, what is it? Four or five drafts that I just mentioned in there um, where they picked at best a role player on a bench and at worst a guy who was out of the league within like three years um, or, or a bench warmer. Um, 
Curry, on the other hand, you know, you know, LeBron has had his fingerprints all over the front office stuff, kind of his entire career. Um, Curry, on the other hand, he's really distanced himself, at least it appears that way from any front office decisions with the exception of them citing Kevin Durant. Um, I know he was huge in the recruitment of Kevin Durant, but it seems like for the most part, he's kind of been hands off and, and not really, you know, made demands on the front office and at least isn't publicly saying like, that we need more playmakers or we need more this, we need more that, we need help. You never, you never hear something like that out of Curry. Um, and as a result, there really hasn't been a ton of roster turnover on, on the Warriors over the years, at least compared to LeBron uh, and one of a LeBron team. Um, you know, it feels like LeBron's always playing like with a completely different team year in and year out. Like look at the Lakers this year versus last year. It's just an entirely new roster. Um, if you think about the finals teams, you know, for the Warriors, even a lot of the role players were the same, like Leandro Barbosa was there a ton, Sean Livingston, you know, Andre Iguodala, he was kind of a key player, um, but still he was, you know, a constant there, Kavon Looney. Um, it always felt like the same team year in and year out. Um, also, he's not a guy, you know, like LeBron, where he kind of exclusively plays with veteran players. You know, you let Clay and Draymond, Harrison Barnes kind of grow around him. Um, you know, they all came into the league around the same time. So it's a little bit different, but um, look at the current team, you know, the emergence of Andrew Wiggins and Jordan Poole, you know, when Durant left and they signed D'Angelo Russell as part of that sign and trade um, that Wiggins, that what eventually became Wiggins D'Lo piece that could have easily been flipped into some aging veteran who could have helped them, you know, win in the short term, same with that draft pick that eventually becomes Jonathan Kaminga. And speaking of Kaminga, you know, on the roster now they've got Kaminga, Moses Moody, James Wiseman, Jordan Poole is all real young guys that could, could easily be exchanged for like another star player, or at least some, some veterans who would be better in the short term. Uh, Kavon Looney, I mentioned him earlier. He was a guy who wasn't very good right away, didn't get a ton of playing time, but um, they gave him time to develop and he became a key part of things. And he still remains today a key part of things. It's, it's kind of hard to say which approach has been the best um, because it, this has benefited both players in their own way. Um, as I mentioned with LeBron, he, he's been given very little reason to be confident in, in an organization you know, Cleveland just didn't give him any reason to think that they were going to do the right things in terms of player development, drafting, free agent signings, whatever. And to kind of defend him on kind of his later behavior, you know, would his second go around in Cleveland, would they have won the title had they been waiting on Andrew Wiggins to develop or waiting on Dion Waiters to develop slash accept the bench role? Probably not, you know, and down the line, it, it really didn't matter that they didn't have those guys um, because the cupboards were left bare and he ended up leaving anyway. Um, even Kyrie, you know, was rumored to be kind of sacrificed there in, in the in the second go around in Cleveland. You know, there was a trade that fell through that was going to send Paul George and Eric Bloodsoe to Cleveland. Um, this eventually leads to Kyrie demanding the trade to Boston. Um, but you know, you, you can't really blame LeBron for feeling a little bit jaded towards like, you know, organizations and franchises and the, and the types of decisions that they make. You know, even the current state of the Lakers, as dire as it is, you know, the decision to grab Russell Westbrook was a disaster through and through. 
Um, but mainly like they didn't really sacrifice a ton of young guys. Kyle Kuzma, relatively young, but not like a promising young prospect. Like when Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram were traded, you know, would the Lakers have won that title without Anthony Davis and waiting on Lonzo and, and Ingram to develop, you know, again, probably not. And, you know, especially at this stage in his career, he's not really at any place to be waiting patiently for young guys to develop around him. Um, for Curry, you know, look at the situation he's currently in. He's still playing at an MVP level, even with Draymond kind of becoming a lot less effective, at least on the offensive end. Um, and Clay Thompson being a huge question mark kind of going forward, just coming back from the, you know, a series of really bad injuries. We're just not really sure what he's going to end up looking like. But yet the future still looks really bright there in Golden State. Kaminga looks like he could be a really special player. James Wiseman, while he hasn't played yet this year, you know, he was the second overall pick, so he could still be really good. Jordan Poole has obviously come into his own, and Andrew Wiggins is finally looking like some semblance of what we thought he would be. And he's still relatively young. All of these guys are, are really young, and they probably all have their best basketball in front of them. You know, the, this has afforded the Warriors, you know, a ton of flexibility. You know, they can either make the big splash trade for another star player to, you know, get the last out of Curry's prime, or they can allow Curry to age gracefully as those guys step into bigger roles. LeBron, on the other hand, you know, like I mentioned with the Lakers situation being dire, you know, he's in year 19 now. He's still being asked to carry the team, playing big minutes. It's basically running point guard on offense, center on defense now. It's just not a recipe for long-term success. But again, his contract's up after next year, so he can just jump ship to another team. Um, even the way these guys are aging is just completely opposite of one another. You know, when we talk about Curry, you know, he's going to have an extended career because his game is timeless. He doesn't rely on a ton of athletic ability. You know, it's all skill-based. So it's, it's something that he's going to be able to age with. And, you know, if he desires, he'll be able to play into his 40s. LeBron, on the other hand, he just is timeless. You know, his game is not timeless. We've seen players, you know, that rely on athletic ability, you know, age out really quickly and father time kind of comes for them but a lot like Tom Brady he still looks to be at the peak of his powers you know for the most part he's lost maybe half a step but he's still one of the best players in the league he just he just seems timeless well Curry's game is timeless are there any two players with any more opposite play styles in the league any two star players I, I really don't think so um, I'm going to start on the defensive side of the ball just because there's a little bit less to talk about there um, obviously Curry, not a great defender, uh, better than he gets credit for. I think, um, you know, he's, he's really smart on that end. He has great timing, jumping into passing lanes or, or, you know, bringing a double on a big and digging down on them, um, poking the ball away from a ball handler, at, you know, help side. It's very similar to the type of defender that Allen Iverson was neither really great conventional defenders, but they knew how to make good gambles to get a lot of steals. Curry's also very underrated on defensive glass. He gets a lot of rebounds, you know, LeBron, on the other hand, he's thought of as like an all-time defensive player. One of the best we've ever seen. I, I think a lot of that is for sports center highlights though. I actually think he's a little bit overrated on the defensive end, at least in the conventional sense, you know, he can be aloof on that end. You know, he can lose track of his man or a shooter. And he really isn't the, the menace on the ball that you would really expect from a player like him. Um, you know, I, a couple of examples of that, you know, one of the playoff series with Indiana, Paul George just absolutely torched him. One for a big dunk on Chris Anderson, you know, another for a game winner. Um, and then Jason Terry, 2011 finals, just tortured him all series long. Uh, Danny Green in the 13 finals, you know, there was a record setting 
you know, finals trip for Danny Green. He had a ton of three-pointers in that series, and most of that damage was done against LeBron. I also remember David West just kind of beating him up in the post during some of those Pacer series. Um, didn't want to turn this into just a, you know, crap on LeBron for his defense. You know, he, he there is some things that he's really special at on defense, and, and where the prime locked-in version of LeBron is a complete menace is when he can help off of his man or when he has like a clear physicality advantage on his matchup. You know, I remember him putting Tony Parker and a prime Derrick Rose just in the torture chamber, just overwhelming them with his, his athleticism, his size, his strength. Like they just, they didn't know what happened. Um, also when we play the, the heat would play the Celtics in the playoffs. We'd always throw him on Rondo to let him just LeBron just roam the pain and protect the basket. I mean, he's an absolute menace that way, you know, he's also got to be probably the greatest defender on the fast break of all time. You know, those chase down blocks he gets, I, I'm still blown away by them. It's just insane. And it, it just feels like a guaranteed thing when he's chasing someone down on the break. Um, you know, both are just really smart team defenders who know how to gamble, but they gamble in different ways. You know, Curry more about the steals. Um, you know, he jumps into passing lanes, digs the ball out on bigs, um, you know, pokes the ball away from a ball handler. LeBron can play some passing lanes too, but he's not really digging on bigs like like Curry does or, or poking the ball away from a ball handler who kind of dribbles to him on help side. But, you know, unlike Curry, LeBron is super versatile on that. And he, you know, in his prime, capable of guarding one through five very easily. Um, that's just something just because of their frame, we would never be able to say about Curry. You know, finishing around the basket, now to switch gears to more of an offensive thing. Um, both of these guys are all time, you know, in terms of finishing around the basket, Curry is and the way they finish is completely different. Curry is all about the slippery finishes around the basket. You know, he's really good at kind of squeezing through like a driving lane and, and being crafty with the finishes. You know, I'm thinking specifically about those layups that he does that seem to hit the rafters, you know, he throws them up so high off the backboard that keeps it away from a shot blocker. And it just feels like it's never going to come down. Um, you know, when I did the Curry video, I'm just going to briefly mention this. I talked about how good of a finisher he actually is around the basket. He's the only non-center top 10 in effective field goal percentage, like just insane stuff. And field goal percentage around the basket, he was around the territory of like a David Robinson or a Kim Olajuwon. It's just, I mean, he just is really efficient down there. Um, you know, kind of with Curry being a little bit more finesse, really crafty around the basket, LeBron has always just been destructive. He still is today you know, head of steam on the fast break, you're not even able to foul him. He's just too strong. He's going to get the and one. So it's better to just let him go. He bullies his way to the hoop. And, you know, he still goes through people today, um, goes less over the top. But when he was younger, you know, he was either going through you over the top of you or both. Um, it's a shame we never got him in the dunk contest, but he's still going to go down with one of the most impressive in-game dunk highlight reels of all time. Look at the way these guys set up their scoring. You know, everything for Curry, outside in. His drives to the basket are just keeping the defense honest for to help him get more three-pointers off. When have you ever seen Curry take a contested fast-break layup? Like, on the break, he's either taking the three, or if somebody bites so hard on the three, um, you know, he blows right around him. He's coasting in for an uncontested layup. LeBron, on the other hand, everything is inside out. You know, his, he shoots threes to keep the defense honest um, for his drives to the basket. You know, early on in his career, teams were just sagging off of him. Um, so he developed that three-point shot to drag teams out of the paint where he could blow by them. 
even today, most teams are still happy to let him take those threes. It's not because he isn't effective or isn't a good shooter. It's just, it's less destructive to a, a, you know, a team on defense to have him shooting threes than, you know, barreling into the lane and getting fouls and easy baskets. Yeah. Offensively, you know, LeBron kind of the jack of all traits. He has every tool in the toolbox, you know, you name it drives to the basket with finishes around the rim. He's got the post game. He can shoot, you know, mid post fadeaways and stuff like that. He's a master of the pick and roll and a lethal passer. If you're bringing a double team, you know, he's like the human Swiss army knife Curry. On the other hand, you know, he's seen as a lot more of a specialist. And I know that sounds like an insult, but I think it's more a credit to his shooting than a slight to the rest of his game. Everything he has is built around his three-point shot. And in my opinion, there's no player in NBA history who's better at any one thing than Curry is at three-point shooting. You know, off the dribble, off the catch, on the move, set shots, deep threes, corner threes, you name it. And he's probably the best in league history at it, or at least he has a real case to be the best. Even the way they make their teammates better, totally different. You know, LeBron is a guy that dominates the ball, has a high usage rate, focuses on driving and kicking, or is always the one making the pass to set up his teammates. His threat of driving and scoring in the paint just sucks the defense in and allows the shooter, the shooters he has on his team to get the best looks they've ever had in their career. Or, you know, pick and roll. I mentioned him being a master of that. His threat of driving, just taking it in on, to the basket on the pick and roll, leaves the roll man just wide open. The gravity he commands in the paint is just as high as any player we've ever seen in the league. And with his passing, it makes it nearly impossible to defend him. Curry, on the other hand, you know, spends a ton of time off the ball. And while he can run the pick and roll, and he's a very good passer. It's nowhere near to the, to the level of vision and accuracy that LeBron has. But Curry's gravity is on the exterior. You know, everything just due to the fear of him shooting threes, it just opens up the floor for the entire rest of the team. Think about what you play pickup at the wreck. Like it's always easier to score when you're playing two on two, three on three or four on four. And with Curry, like with him on the court, at worst, your team is playing four on four. But in reality, um, you're they're playing everybody. The defense is so focused on him. It's a really distracted four on four. Cause you've got to dedicate one guy to just shadow him and do nothing else defensively. Even how you can build a team around these guys is, is so different. You know, LeBron teams, it's really simple, really finite. The answer to build a team around LeBron. There are very few types of players that work with him because of his ball dominance players that need the ball, like Wade or Westbrook are always going to struggle with him. Um, and we've seen that play out throughout history, traditional post-up players. Not that we have many of those in the league these days, um, don't really work either. Like look at Chris Bosh, Kevin Love, you know, those are guys who basically became glorified spot up shooters in, you know, their time with LeBron, but the guys who work with LeBron are, are, are just in general players that don't need the ball. You have to have good spot-up shooters above all else. And he's going to get the most out of your old Mike Millers, your old Ray Allens, Wayne Ellington, you know, just guys who shoot, catch and shoot, and do nothing else. They're going to get open looks off of playing with LeBron, and he's going to be able to protect them on the other end with, you know, how great of a shot blocker and presence around the rim he is defensively. You're also going to need a good pick-and-roll partner for LeBron, somebody who can set a good screen, finish around the hoop, it's why Anthony Davis, fit-wise, is probably the best partner LeBron has ever had. 
even during the heat days though, he and Wade had some pick and roll stuff that I still love to watch to this day, you know, with Dwayne Wade as the role man, no one got as much out of Tristan Thompson as LeBron did. And, you know, if you think about Dwight Howard, he was on his way out of the league before he signed that contract with the Lakers. And it really resurrected his career because, you know, that was what Dwight was awesome at in his prime. And that's pretty much the only thing he can do nowadays. You know, aside from the shooters and the lab threat role, man, you know, you, if you get some smart athletic cutters, that's really good. Um, you know, think about Caruso. The on-off numbers for those two were just always so crazy because Caruso knows how to cut off the ball. Wade was another guy during the time in Miami. He really figured that out. No one is hitting the backdoor guy in the league better than LeBron. At its core, you know, LeBron represents the best version of the heliocentric offense, like what the Rockets did with Harden or what the Mavs are currently doing with Luka. You know, he is at his best when he has the ball and his teams are at their best when he has the ball. He's going to make the right decisions more time than any other player with the ball, and he can do more than any other player with it. And he's a willing, unselfish passer, so naturally you're going to want him to be in the position to make the most decisions. Um, with the ball for your team. There probably isn't another player in NBA history who's more dangerous with the ball in his hands. You know, even guys like MJ, Kobe, Durant, pick your score, um, who are more effective that, you know, they're, they're more effective when they're able to work off the ball into their spots, be it like, you know, post up, you know, catches on the wings, isolation on the wings, um, stuff like that. They're, they're way more effective working off the ball. You know, even if you want to go in the other direction and say, well, I I don't, you know, maybe you think playmakers are more dangerous with the ball, you know, a playmaker like magic, maybe you want to say that he's more dangerous as a playmaker. There's a case for that. Um, I think LeBron is in the conversation, but magic wasn't nearly the score that LeBron is. So while he isn't the best in league history, LeBron at either scoring or passing likely, um, he is the best combination we've ever seen of those two, you know, the prototypical point forward, you know, I think Scotty Pippen is a guy that you can really point to kind of invented that position, but LeBron has taken it to the next level. You know, while I mentioned LeBron, you know, talking about him, he's a really unselfish player, but even the unselfishness, these guys are both unselfish. Even the way they are unselfish is different. You know, LeBron is a really willing passer. You know, he wants to create for his teammates and always wants to make for the extra pass. Um, but his play style doesn't allow him to be effective in a more diminished role on the team. Curry, on the other hand, he takes some really selfish shots throughout the game. Um, you know, shots that LeBron doesn't really take. Um, but his play style allows him to take a diminished role and we've seen him take a diminished role and that's really unselfish from a superstar player like Curry you know and because of LeBron's play style anytime you have him on your team the floor of what your team will be is higher than adding any other single player in NBA history I I would say you know evidence of that he's only missed the playoffs twice in his career I'm sorry three times in his career one year with the Lakers he was hurt for a good amount of the year the other two were the first two years in this league You know, we're in year 19. It's just insane. You know, with Curry, I think the floor is a lot lower with Curry on your team. You know, the floor of what you can, what you can be. We've kind of seen that play out over the last couple of years, but the ceiling is so much higher with Curry on your team than, than with LeBron. And you might, it's because he can take that diminished role. We have evidence of that. 
you know, have we ever considered one of a, a team that LeBron is on just completely unbeatable? Even the big three Miami Heat, when they were put together, you know, a lot of people were worried that no one was going to be able to beat them. But when the season started, they were very beatable. They even lost in the finals their first year and they lost in the finals, you know, the last year that they were together. Curry, you know, his teams, even before Durant got there, you know, they posted a 73 and nine record basically unbeatable that season kind of stomped through the playoffs with the exception of the Oklahoma city series where they went seven. And then um, obviously that seven game series against the Cavs where they ultimately ended up losing. And then once they added Durant, you know, they were just completely unbeatable. They were stomping through the playoffs every year. And this kind of goes hand in hand with why there really isn't a Curry formula to building teams. Like I had mentioned with LeBron, which is the spot up shooters and like an effective role, man. Um, I'm not going to get into the morality of Kevin Durant joining a 73 and nine Warriors team that had previously won a title. But the fact remains that that was really a seamless transition for those guys. Unlike when LeBron put together the big three in Miami, or I guess unfair to say when they put together the big three in Miami, you know, some credit for that seamless transition with the Warriors should undoubtedly go to Kevin Durant for fitting in. But I think Curry also deserves a ton of credit for that. Probably more so, you know, he made that fit work and um, you know, he was the guy that kind of took the step back, but I'm not going to get too much into that. I, I, I more just want to discuss why that's even possible. You know, Opposite of, you know, LeBron, Curry, for my money, is the most dangerous player in league history without the ball. You know, I mentioned in the Curry video when he broke the three-point record, you know, running off of screens and, and, and doing the running around that he does off the ball, he really just puts the fear of God in you that a three-pointer is coming because it takes so little time and space for him to get off a quote-unquote good look. And because his quote unquote good look includes, you know, two guys draped all over him from half court on and in, you're basically living in constant fear. And with that fear, the floor is just wide open. All of this to say the type of Kurt player that Curry can play with is pretty much limitless. But if we're going to talk about needs, I think as far as needs go outside of the obvious defensive players to kind of help cover for him. I think both of these guys need good defensive players alongside of them. Um, just to, I think that's just something you need for a championship caliber team. Um, good screen setters for Curry is a must. Also, you know, a, at least a good passer who can put the ball in the shooting pocket for him. Uh, Draymond Green obviously ends up becoming like just the perfect teammate for him. Um, and then that really outside of that, it's really whatever you want. Um, you want to build a team of great shooters. Look at how great he and Clay Thompson are together. Um, it works because it's hard to keep up with one great shooter. Now you start running two and three around, like when they had Durant. It's just impossible for a defense to keep up with that many guys. You know, it, it just, you can't, as a defensive player trying to help out, you just can't keep track of all of that and whoever has the ball. Would you rather have like some ISO scores and slashers? You know, look at the resurgence of Andrew Wiggins, you know, Andre Iguodala when he was still, you know, relatively in his prime or even Jordan Poole kind of coming into his own now, you know, driving lanes are never more open than on a Curry team. I feel like once a game, I watch Draymond Green lumber down the lane for the world's slowest drive and an uncontested dunk just because there's no one in the paint. Curry was running off of a bunch of screens and everybody was so worried about that that they forgot Draymond with the ball. Um 
and we haven't really seen this played out, but imagine if Curry played with like a dominant big man, like a Shaquille O'Neal or, or somebody that could just eat in the post. Good luck bringing a double onto that big man with Curry floating around out there. You know, I mentioned LeBron being kind of a Swiss army knife because of his skill set. Well, Curry is the Swiss army knife because of who he can play with. Last thing I want to mention here is some legacy stuff. I, I don't want to get into who ranks above who all time. We'll save that for another time. Um, but just in general, their impact to basketball as a whole. You know, let's start with LeBron. I really think that he represents the history of the league. You know, he has mastered basically every aspect of the game that has come before him. He's made it his own. You know, physically, he's a force like Wilt or Shaq. Playmaking, he does a really great magic um, impression. He has scoring outbursts like Michael Jordan or, or Kobe. You know, play style-wise, he could play the hero ball of the 90s and early 2000s. He can run showtime on the break like magic in the 80s. Or, you know, if you want to go pick and roll heavy, he runs it about as good as any seven-second Suns team ever did. Particularly with the Suns, he really took that heliocentric offense that they and small ball that they kind of pioneered, made it his own, and took it to the highest level possible with the Heat. He is the endpoint, the master. He's taken everything that's come before him um, to its furthest level. He hasn't really changed the way basketball is played, but he's he's mastered everything that's come before him. You know, while LeBron represents the past, Curry is the future. He's revolutionized the game of basketball. You know, gone are the days of the twin tower bigs and the slow grinded out struggles of the 90s. The game is played totally differently than when LeBron entered the league in the early 2000s. Teams are taking more threes each season, and kids are growing up um, today seeing more of themselves in Curry than LeBron, twine jibs across America for better or for worse, in a lot of cases of a lot of pickup games, worse. Um, everyone's taking a ton of threes. And when we talk about the history of basketball, there's almost always two players that define each era. If you think about Wilt and Russell, you know, Wilt represented individual accolades. Russell, great team play. Magic and Bird were opposites of one another. Kobe and Duncan, opposite of one another. For all those differences between those two era-defining players, none have been more different than Curry and LeBron 